anyway, we're uh, just sort of getting towards the end of the time that we've spent looking at the issue of the kingdom of God. And um, I told a story, sorry, again the tech, uh, I told a story in the last, uh, the last time I, I gave this message, uh, which was half an hour ago, uh, uh, that came out of the catalogue of my um, most embarrassing moments. And, and I've got quite a few of them, as you can probably imagine, if you know me at all. Uh, and this one is probably somewhere near the top of my greatest hits of most embarrassing moments. So when I was 17 or 18, uh, I, th I bought like a round-the-world ticket because that sounded like an adventure. It was an adventure. Um, but to kind of go to all these different countries that I bought a plane ticket for, uh, I needed to get a bunch of vaccinations and there was a bunch of health considerations that came with that. And... Um, and so I went to a specialist travel doctor in the city uh, how, who I had no relationship with. I just, I'd, it was on the way to university and I'd seen travel doctors, so I thought I'll go there and I'll get the shots that I need to get, the, the vaccinations that I need to get to go to the places that I need to go and then to be able to get into the other countries that on the other side of it. We started in Africa, which is probably not the way to do it. Uh, maybe start in the developed world and go the other way around. You might need less shots. But I needed to get some shots. And uh, anyway, went into the doctor's office and um, he was sitting on like a swivel chair and there was one for me and he said, uh, you know, sit there. And so I sat next to him as he kind of lined up the needles and stuff that I had to get, I guess. And um, so if Jonah was the doctor, I was like sitting opposite him here in a swivel chair and he primed the first needle and he, he put it in my arm and he injected uh, 5G or whatever, what it, I was an early adopter back then, uh, but he injected what he needed to inject, what I needed to have at that time. And uh, Bill Gates' DNA, is that what it is? Um, so that went in and then he put a uh, cotton bud on that, the site of the injection and, um, and, and he was holding it there. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what he said in that moment, but I think he said, uh, put your finger on the site. Uh, and I think that he said that... Uh, because I've tried to sort of piece it together after the event. I've spent many nights uh, wondering exactly what he said. Because what I heard him say was... Sorry, uh, this is just a little... This is a moment for me. What I heard him say was, put your finger on my tie. Um, <laughs> so I'm sitting like, you know, I mean, he's a doctor, he's wearing a tie, I'm a 17-year-old kid... He's got needles and stuff and degrees on the wall. Uh, he's got this sort of authority with him and he says, put your finger on my tie, which is, is a weird thing to say to someone, isn't it? Um, and so I said, uh, what did you say? And he said, put your finger on it. And of course he meant on the cotton bud, to hold the cotton bud so he could do the other arm. But I just took that as an affirmation of the fact that I was f supposed to follow through on the initial uh, directive. So... I thought, what's the least way, to weird way to do this? And his tie was hanging down slightly as he sat opposite. So I just, like, put my finger out like that and just slowly <laughs> eased it towards just, just below the knot of his tie. 
and I was looking at my finger and I was looking at his face and then I was looking at my finger and then I was looking at his face. I was slowly, slowly getting closer to this doctor and you can imagine he was looking at my finger, then looking at my face and then looking at my finger and then looking at my face until I just reached out and finally placed my finger on his tie and he said, what are you doing? (laughs) Which is an understandable thing to say. And I said, you said that I should put my finger on your tie. He said, I did not say that. I said, put your finger on the cotton bud, you idiot. Uh, He might not have, idiot was in the tone, it was implied. (laughs) So quickly, I I put my finger on the cotton bud and he did the other arm and I could not get out of that office quick enough uh, because it was obvious that I had misunderstood it and it was an extremely awkward situation. And it just made me think, uh, the reason why I was thinking about that is I was thinking about the way that so much of the Bible comes to us as a sort of imperative, right? Like, it, I mean, it's God's Word. We should take it seriously. Uh, there's an oughtness to it. You ought to do this, right? But there's also so much of it that is so weird and so difficult to understand. And I think that is uh, going on with this Kingdom of God stuff that we've been talking about. There is just some of the core teachings of Jesus around the kingdom of God are just really difficult to understand, but they come (laughs) with this sense of, this is serious, you need to do something about this. And so, thinking about (laughs) my uh, interaction with the doctor, there's (laughs) there's a couple of risks. One is that we just do something stupid because we don't understand what's being said to us. Uh, And the other is, and this is quite common as as well, where we just kind of go, this is in the too hard basket, and I'll just kind of keep doing life, ignoring this thing that actually feels really heavy um, and just hope that it's going to be okay. It's like we can keep it kind of locked in the, in the basement of our brain. I want us to turn, because this is one of those passages, um, to, to Luke chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles. Um, and I'll flash it on the screen, actually. Is it, is it going to... Uh, we got Luke 6 up there. Oh, I've got the clicker. Is that what you're saying? Thank you, Aski. Okay, so looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you and your name as evil because of the Son of Man. It's a, it's a tricky passage because at once it has that sense of oughtness, um, but it's kind of mystifying, like exactly what are we to do with this? I think about kind of correspondent passage with this, it might even be linked in the footnotes of your Bible, is this one here, Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And if you know that passage, it's coming out of this I guess story that Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats. So it, it pictures the Son of Man, which is an interesting title we don't have time to get into, and all the angels with him on his throne, 
and the nations gathered before him. And he's like separating the people out into these two categories. The sheep who come into this wonderful inheritance uh, to whom he can say, well done. And then the goats to whom, rather frighteningly, what does he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. So the stakes are high, right? This, this sense of what puts you in the kingdom or out of it, it's a big deal. And um, I think there's a possibility that for, for some of us, uh, when it comes to this stuff, we're, kinda, we're leaning into the grace of God because there's a chance that we're sort of hoping that even if we're not real clear on what God is going to say, well done, you know, you made the cut about, we feel like maybe we're doing enough not to sort of be in the depart from me category and maybe we're in the same category that the doctor put me in which is the what are you doing <laughs> I, I guess I guess you can get in I see that you went to church and read your bible um, yeah but somehow what the way that you've understood this teaching is kind of strange and so I thought we'd just take a few moments to 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 look at what's challenging about this passage and maybe to put some boundaries around it, sort of frame it contextually in a way that I hope will make a bit more sense of it. I want to suggest that part of the problem with how we often hear passages like this, this kind of upside-down kingdom passages where Jesus sort of messes with our expectations of what we should expect, part of the problem that comes along with that is sometimes we hear the good news the gospel what God is doing in the world in terms of a heaven story and actually I think it's more instructive and useful to think of it in the terms which Jesus uses and they are not of a you are saved to heaven story but you are a part of a kingdom that is coming story. And maybe, you know, we pick this stuff up, not necessarily because we've sat under bad teaching or we've got really lousy hermeneutics, but it just gets drip-fed into us from culture. We see 600 cartoons across the course of our life where it's about St. Peter at the gate letting people in or not letting them in to heaven, right? And so that kind of becomes the shaping paradigm. But actually, when you look at Matthew here, you'll notice that the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, the ones who he congratulates for for doing the right thing, take your inheritance, which is the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. This has been called the difference between a correct but incomplete theology the saved-to-heaven theology, and a more complete theology, which is a kingdom-of-God theology. Take your inheritance. Your inheritance is the kingdom. Our inheritance, then, is not heaven. That's an incomplete, though maybe partly correct theology, but the kingdom of God. I think if we are travelling around with the theology of getting saved to heaven being what the gospel is about, we're travelling around with that story 
in our head thanks to cartoons and whatever else. It would, un- it, you know, it would make sense to me that we would look at a passage like Luke where he speaks about blessed be the poor and we would go, this doesn't make, this, this just doesn't compute. Surely God wouldn't want me to be poor, right? Why, like, what's the benefit in me being poor? Surely God wouldn't want me to be hungry. Surely God wouldn't want me to be weeping, hated, excluded and insulted. Where does that fit into how I get to heaven? What does it matter if I'm rich or poor in this life? It's, if it's ultimately about God forgiving my sins and me getting to live on a cloud in the sky with a custom-made harp. I'm being a little bit facetious there. But you, you, know, you know the sort of s- the stereotype that I'm talking about. I suggest that the story that the Gospels tell us is not a story about qualifying for heaven, though there is this thread, a significant thread about our sin and how God deals with it. But it is a story about participating in the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message. That was what Jesus came to do. The observation sometimes made that if we get so caught up in the saved to heaven story, the Gospels become the least meaningful part of the New Testament for us because it's like, well, what does it matter what Jesus did when he was alive? It really gets interesting when he dies to take care of my sin so that I can go to heaven. But actually, why, why would those stories be there if they weren't important? And what do those stories tell? They tell of Jesus bringing the kingdom in, announcing the kingdom. And I think that these passages like the Beatitudes, like this passage from Luke where it talks about blessed be the poor, these tricky passages are actually serving a purpose for us that helps us to make more sense of them. And that purpose is that they are priming us for kingdom life. The reason why they don't compute if we have a salvation to heaven theology is because they're not actually about the salvation to heaven part. They're about this bigger thing that God is doing, the bigger purpose of Scripture, the story that gets told from Genesis to Revelation of the coming of the kingdom. Think with me for a moment, if you will, about another passage from Luke, chapter 14, where Jesus says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What do we do with that carrying the cross language if our real interest is beginning when life's over (laughs) and we graduate to heaven? I think there's a couple of traps that we can fall into if we have that uh, correct but incomplete theology of salvation to heaven. Think about this passage with me for a moment, if you will. Colossians 2 from Paul's writing. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. That's good news, isn't it? And this is really good news. He forgave all of your sins and they were cancelled. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, Paul says, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it, the sin, away, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that 
wonderful. Isn't that the path to forgiveness, to Jesus? The pathway into a life with Christ, a life of discipleship. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, doesn't he? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, this is the bigger kingdom story. It's not just about whether Stephen gets to heaven or whether I get to heaven or whether Ben gets to heaven. It's about the fact that good will finally triumph, that in line with Israel's expectations as we read all the way through their scriptures, that God will come and reign on earth and establish his kingdom of peace and justice for all time. There is a battle, the scripture tells us, Old and New Testaments, between forces of darkness and the kingdom of heaven. And Paul here reminds us that Christ disarmed those forces of evil, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So what does the cross then mean for us? What does it mean for us to carry the cross? I've been teaching a subject on discipleship this semester and it's always so enriching to go back and look at the gospel stories and look at who Jesus was to his disciples because we use the term discipleship to mean a whole heap of stuff sometimes we use it as sort of synonymous with the, the idea of Christianity but actually in the first century discipleship was a thing it had a particular content if you think about Jesus's disciples think about Peter and Andrew or Simon and Andrew John and James fishing and then Jesus comes and says, follow me. And they leave their nets. They completely change their life and they follow him. Why did they do that? Because in Jewish culture, discipleship was a thing. If you were a rabbi, that was one of the most prestigious things you could do culturally. In a theocratic culture, if you were an expert in living out God's law to the point that you were acknowledged, to the extent that other people would drop what they were doing and follow you, learn the way that you read God's law, learn the way that you lived God's law. It was a big deal. That's why they could drop their nets because it was like there is a privilege here, there is an opportunity here to be the disciple of this rabbi who seems to be doing something really significant. And maybe you've heard before that such was the kind of devotion of disciples to rabbis in Jewish history that... Um, little things would happen where like disciples would take on uh, sometimes the impediment or the affectation of their rabbi. There's stories of uh, disciples who adopt the same lisp that their rabbi has as a kind of tribute to them. There's a story of um, disciples who adopted the limp that their rabbi had so that they could completely model themselves on their master, on the person who gave them a vision of the good life and what God was doing. Now, there's something to that, but it's also kind of ridiculous in a sense, isn't it? Like, what is it with the limp, Andrew? I, I mean, imagine a bunch of Christians who adopted the affectations that Jesus might have made. Say we had the opportunity to meet Jesus and we found out that he does this horrible snorting thing when he talks. And so we all go around talking and snorting. That kind of thing happens. It ha happens with Christian preachers, actually. There's actually no power in that snort <laughs> or in that limp, necessarily, is there? There's something potentially a little bit disingenuous about it. 
Cross-carrying is not something like that. It's not an affectation. Our cross-carrying is about more than just an association with Jesus. It's possible if we have that saved-to-heaven theology, I think, that we can think about cross-carrying in terms of just identifying with Christ. Christ died on a cross, so I'll wear a cross around my neck. Christ suffered when he died, so when I think about suffering, I guess I'll think about the cross. I think it goes deeper than that. Again, cross-carrying as the scripture speaks about it, as Jesus spoke to his disciples about it, is about more than just homage to Jesus. I don't know if you've seen um, a story before where someone, often they're making a point, and I think there's something admirable generally when I've read these kind of stories, where someone carrying a cross, like carrying a physical cross. Often it's an American man who is walking across America, you know, holding a cross over his shoulder and it's got a wheel on the base of it. Has anyone seen a story like that? Now, I don't want to diminish that. I think there could be something powerful and prophetic and kind of captivating about that as an image. I think God could use that. But I get the sense that cross-carrying is about more than that too. It's, it's about more than just saying, I, I admire Jesus, so I'm going to do something like Jesus did. I'm going to draw attention to this thing that he did. In another of Paul's letters to the church in Rome, he said this, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you think back to that passage from Colossians, that Christ is making a spectacle of the authorities and the powers of this world on the cross. I think what this language is pointing to is that there is a power in the cross that extends beyond just covering your sins as an individual. There is a power in the cross that is the very institution of the kingdom of God in this world. And what is that power? It is that the God of the universe would give that up and would die even for his enemies. And I wonder then if we, by God's grace, following the rabbi, really being like the rabbi, not just in affectation, not limping fakely because he limps, but because he really suffered, suffering somehow is a part of his call on our lives, something of what it means to follow him truly. I think it might go something a little bit like this. The power of the kingdom through us, following Jesus will mean that we love those who hate us. Jesus loved his enemies and asked us to love our enemies. Loving those who hate us will mean that we may at least be prepared to suffer for them. Suffering for them by God's grace will mean, by God's grace, that we win them to his love. I'm going to get the band on stage because we're going to finish with communion. Listen, I, I, I want you to hear me clearly here. 
what I'm proposing this morning, if it's slightly challenging to the comic book theology that, uh, I mean, it's in my head, right? It's not that there is anything that we can do to earn our way <laughs> into heaven. Hopefully, I kind of deconstructed that idea at the outset. But what I'm suggesting, and actually if you go through, and I'll send out in the life group notes this week, if you go through Israel's scripture, there's this thread that says that God is going to use suffering in the lives of his people to do something powerful, to show something of his nature. You know, it's not in our nature to love in the way that Christ loved. But it does happen sometimes, doesn't it? by God's power, by God's grace. The way that I think it happens is he pours his love into our hearts until we're overflowing. And it's actually his love that flows out of us. It's not about anything that we can do in our own self-discipline or our own fervor. It is grace, but it's grace so abundant that it flows out going to get us to take communion. I just want to tell a very quick story. We've got a little baby in our house at the moment. Uh, Ira, he's nine weeks old, I think, and he is so, so lovely. It's just wonderful to have new life in our midst. But I've got to say, he's not contributing much around the place. In fact, uh, we set him a list of chores this week and he's done none of them. Of course, I'm joking, but isn't that the way with our childhood, right? Particularly this trajectory that we go on when, when we're so vulnerable and so unable to contribute like-for-like like help. But our parents, they'll, they'll pour into us over the course of, I mean, they really pour into us our whole lives, but the love, if you've had good parents, and I think most of us have, your parents just love you in a way that you can never repay, right? And when you go through those awkward years, teenage years, where you disagree about all sorts of stuff, you can't see it. Sometimes it takes having your own kids to realise what your mum and dad or what your mum did for you. It's this trajectory that so many people in life follow where they kind of, they're in conflict with their parents and they reach a certain stage of life where they go, actually, <laughs> mum and dad were awesome to me and, and a new relationship starts. I mean, if you can't outrun the love of your mum over the course of your life, how much more the love of God who sacrificed his very life for you, though you didn't deserve it. That's the power of the kingdom. That's the power of the kingdom. Unending, overflowing love. As we take our communion this morning, I just want to take a moment to think about this mystery, this grace, that yes, Christ's death atones for your sin. You have peace with him. He's not going to hold things you've done against you if you come to him but he wants to go beyond that he wants to pour his love into your life to empower you to even love your very enemies 
this helps us to understand this challenging passage. It's not that there's anything about being poor or hated that qualifies us for heaven. Jesus is just saying, that might be on the cards. I'm giving you enough love to weather the hatred of your enemies so you can keep loving them and you can keep loving them and you can keep loving them because that's how I love you. Doesn't that sound like something that could change the world? When you think about when the world has been changed by God's love around you, doesn't it have that going on? God, we thank you so much for your deep, 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 unending love for us. Pour it into our hearts again, we pray. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be like a mob of disciples who fake limp along behind you. But Lord, you could use even the most unfortunate parts of our life, our suffering for your glory. Amen.